Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hello, J.J. Hi, Don. You love today's guest. I do. (laughs) (laughs) And so do I. I think he's one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. It is Ernie Johnson from TNT Sports. And Ernie does. He co-hosts... Inside the NBA with Charles mm-hmm. Barkley and Kenny Smith and sometimes yeah. Shaquille O'Neal has been doing it for years. Yeah, yeah. But why I love him is for the NCAA tournament. Yeah. Because that is my favorite time of the entire year. Are you being serious? I'm dead serious. I used to go to Vegas every year. Better than year. a Gilmore Girls Marathon? Mm, it's a close second. But no. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that any day. But this in March, I used to go to Vegas every year with my college roommates and we would just watch uh, every single stories, game. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And when one shining moment comes on oh, at the yeah. end. I laugh. I cry. I celebrate life for just a small I, the, thing. I don't. I know. <laughs> See, Here's this the is thing. Funny. JJ was he was making bids on a house. One of them fell through and he's like, hey, Don and Betsy, you know, there's gonna be like three weeks before I get this house. Actually, I don't think you asked us. I think we said, just live just with live us. With just live with <laughs> It happened to be right at the end of the tournament. Yeah. So you and I, and you keep telling me about this one shining moment. Yeah, you never montage. heard it before. Never heard You'd it. You never heard it before. Because never once seen you find it. out who wins, I usually just you turn it off. You go to bed. Yeah. yeah, I go to bed. No, the most important moment is still coming. And you convinced me of this. Yeah, the shining moment. And we stayed up. Yes. And then and I'm like, this must be good. Yeah. And then how does it go? The ball is tipped. (laughs) Aaron Neville. (laughs) There you are. It's a bad Disney song. Running for your life. It's really bad. You're a shooting star. It's 101 Dalmatians bad. (laughs) No, it's amazing. They could play that in 101 Dalmatians. Anyway, so I stayed up an extra hour to hear this nonsense, and then I'm watching it. and And I'm in tears. I'm like leaning back, grasping a pillow over my chest, just reliving every moment of the tournament of the missed shots and the wins and the game winning shots the buzzer beaters and at the end of one shining moment i am spent i'm exhausted i've gone through every range of emotion you could possibly go through and you go (laughs) you go that's it (laughs) (laughs) i spent an hour i could have been sleeping (laughs) you're like have you read sleep studies that sleep is important oh not more than this (laughs) shining moment i might have been a little bitter because gonzaga lost that is true it didn't matter for me i was rooting for gonzaga but that moment i live for that moment people were texting me you saw it people were like texting me they're like it's coming people sent me pictures from their tv everybody knows how much if you want to be known for something it's better to be known for this than donuts, which is the thing I've been <laughs> like. Being, because you did that to yourself. I you know. Talk about well, I do love donuts, but I've been known on this podcast for donuts. But what I want to be more known for is one shining moment. <laughs> the bowl well, is Ernie tipped. Johnson <laughs> is known for being a co-host on TNT Sports on Inside yeah. the NBA. But you don't know him if that's how you know him. Yeah. This man is unbelievable. He is Probably in terms of character, integrity, humility, work ethic, hugeness of heart, devotion of spirit, the greatest man I know. You can't compare to this guy. Yeah. And when he put this book out, I was so encouraged that I just wanted everybody to know his real story. Yeah. And if you think, Ernie, they turn the lights off and he gets into his Cadillac and he drives (laughs) off to his trophy (laughs) wife and sends uh, child support to some other family... You don't know. This guy is unbelievable. Yeah. And we get into some of it in this interview, and we get into why. 
uh, why he's chosen to live this way. And he, he calls it unscripted. And what was, there's a beautiful moment in the interview where he, because I'm trying to get to the heart of it. How yeah, are yeah. you so good? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not, not nice. And yeah. not, how are you so nice or weak? How are you so deeply good? Yeah. Like the men that we want to exist in the world, right? How yeah. did you get this way? And he basically goes into this explanation of like, if it weren't for some of these hard things that happened in my life, I wouldn't probably be yeah. good. And it was just very comforting, a different perspective. In other words, he was saying, I'm not as great as you think I am. I'm forced to be great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, is, yeah. which even as you hear it, you go, I wouldn't wish that on myself. Yeah. And yet he's saying, I wouldn't trade this life for anything. It's a real contrast. Here. I loved and it. It's a beautiful interview. Anyway, I don't want to wait anymore because we, we get to talk for a good period of time. But Ernie Johnson is a wonderful man. Again, co-host of Inside the NBA. Without further ado, here's my interview with Ernie Johnson. Ernie, it's great to have you on the show. It is my pleasure, Don. And uh, man, this is uh, this is a highlight of my day. Believe me. <laughs> I told a friend this morning. They said, "How was your morning?" And I said, "It was great. I spent about an hour early morning in the writing shed reading your new book, Unscripted, crying my eyes out." <laughs> if that's a if that's a good morning. That's a good morning. I didn't mean for you to have to do that, Bob. But man, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're diving in. Well, here's what I love about the book. It is a really meaningful book. Talks a lot about your family. Talks a lot about some of the hardships. But you know, for business leaders, there's really just some practical stuff in here about work ethic, and there's also some great stories about some of the moments that you've gotten to experience as a sportscaster. Some of those great sports moments, but. You know, you and I have known each other for a long time, and you know as well as I do that a person is only as good as their team. And so before we get into some of the sports stuff and some of the work ethic stuff, I want the world to know about your family. It's something that you talk about a little bit on the air, but you've got a wife, Cheryl, who's just incredible, and she's doing work in Atlanta to end sex trafficking I mean, Ernie, as accomplished as you are, you are uh, out of your league in terms of your family, right? Oh, I, I believe me. I outfit <laughs> my coverage when I married Cheryl, and she is, you know, and and the way I describe it, I, you know, look, I'm a sportscaster, and she's a world changer. I was into this scripted life. I really was. You know, it was like when when Cheryl and I got married, and and we met uh, in in a rather unique way because she was the teller at the bank where I used to take my checks as the high-paid anchor of the evening news on WMAZ in Macon, Georgia. So you're, you're making about uh, 300 bucks a, a month. You're asking her if she can deposit the uh, buy one, get one free Dairy Queen coupon into your bank account. <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. And, and it was so funny because we met through six inches of bulletproof glass at, at the CNS <laughs> bank down the street from the TV station. And the, the greatest, you know what captivated me at first hmm. was the fact that I would give her the check and she'd say, so what do you do at WMAZ? And I said, well, well, I answer the news, of course. And, uh, and she says, she says, I look, I'm in school at Mercer and I'm, and I'm working two jobs to work my way through. So I really don't have time to watch the news. And I was like, wow, she may kind of like me and it's not because of what I'm doing. And so this is kind of cool. You know, she, she just had this wonderful, engaging way about her. And, and, and the, another thing that impressed me was be sure she's working two jobs. She's still in school and on her weekends, she's spending time in the big sisters program with this teenage girl in, mm -hmm. in Macon, Georgia, who's had this really rough life. And I'm yeah. like, 
man, I'm older than this woman, and she is so much more mature than I am. I, I doubt that if I ever asked her out, she would even deign to, to consider it. And then, so eventually when I got up the guts to ask her out, she said yes. I was like, hey, way to go, Ernie. Had a baby. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people, and I, and I guess I, I don't know a lot of people who do what you do or have your level of fame, but their private lives are probably mostly fun and games because maybe for a big part of the reason is that, you know, it's stressful being on TV and being under that kind of pressure. You know, you go home and your wife is trying to end sex trafficking in Georgia and she's working with dignitaries to try to stop that. Uh, you guys have two kids of your own. You've adopted four beautiful kids. Michael, Mookie, uh, as you guys call him, is uh, <laughs> paralyzed and you're putting him to bed every night. I mean, you're going home to reality. And it's a very beautiful reality, but it's also it can be a very hard reality. Is Cheryl the reason that, you know, when you guys teamed up, you became something deep and meaningful? You you live a very different life than maybe a lot of celebrity sports anchors do. I mean, is it the team that has made this life for you? I guess that's what I'm asking. Like, how did the team help? Yeah, it really is because on the surface, you know, I'm this guy who grew up in a sports background with a dad who played Major League Baseball and was a, a broadcaster for 30 years for the Atlanta Braves. And, and, you know, sports has been, you know, a thread that runs through our lives. And Cheryl could not be further from the world of sports if she tried. <laughs> I mean, it's like she'd never went to any games. It didn't really have any interest for her. And I think that's kind of why it's worked, because I never feel like I have to go home and explain why this team put on the hit and run in the bottom of the third right. inning. With this guy coming up next, we never have to do that. And so it really is that our, our time together is really spent talking about the more important things. And it was Cheryl's part that really took us down this unscripted road because the script I had written was, okay, I've got this great job and this great wife and a boy and a girl. And okay, that's the script. Now let's just follow this and let's not deviate from it. And then she's the one who says to me in 1991, when I come home from work one night, she says, you know what we need to do? And I said, uh, chicken or fish, you know, you know I'm, I'm game for either tonight. And her response was, uh, no, here's what I think we need to do. We need to go to Romania and adopt one of these kids out of an orphanage there because I watched ABC News 2020 and these kids, they have it rough. You know, mm. they've, they've been warehoused, especially these kids with any kind of uh, abnormalities or any kind of birth defects or any you know, anything like that. And so we explored that and explored the situation there and, and how would we go about doing this? And then she went over to Romania with a group of people she wow. just met at a meeting and I stayed home with Eric and Maggie as worried as you think I might be about what she's going to be doing for two months in, in Romania. She's more concerned that when she gets back that Eric and Maggie are going to have rickets because I, you know, <laughs> all I've been doing is giving them pizza and, and not allowing a vegetable or a fruit in the house. Right. And so... It was really that heart that she has to reach out and, and make the world a better place that, again, it was so far past where I was in my life. I was all about the next thing I had to do at work, and she was all about the next thing we need to do to make the world better. Yeah. And, and, and people would joke about us and say, oh, there are the Johnsons trying to save the world one child at a time. <laughs> and we'd kind of laugh, but then we'd say... Yeah, that's pretty accurate yeah. uh, because, you know, after Michael's, you know, that whole episode of adopting him when the you know, the woman at the orphanage comes out holding this three-year-old boy and hands him to, to Cheryl and says, don't take boys, not do it. 
And then she says to me on the phone, I, this kid is so much more than we can handle, mm. but I don't know if I can go the rest of my life wondering what happened to that blonde haired kid in the orphanage. Yeah. You know, and I, and I'm sitting here at the other end of that phone line and said, bring him home. And that was the marking moment of the unscripted. It really was. That's where it really took hold. And then it gets more unscripted when a doctor tells you after treating him for a year for various ailments that, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, your son's got muscular dystrophy. Yeah. And then that reality sets in and you look at the, what MD is and what it does and that there's no cure and that the muscles don't grow. They just waste away. And, and a lot of kids don't get out of their teens. And it hits you right between the eyes that life has definitely changed and will forever be changed. Man, not for a second do you second guess it or do you regret it. It's just like, okay, this is what we deal with. Here we go. You and I were at a conference of some sort and uh, Jeff Foxworthy was doing a stand-up routine. And we were kind of down beneath the stage just laughing at Jeff. And the whole time, Michael's nickname is Mookie. Mookie, of course, is in a wheelchair and you've got your hand kind of up the back of Mookie's shirt a little bit, just caressing his back, uh, giving him some human touch. And when you go home, you help Mookie with using a contraption to, that lifts him out of the wheelchair and puts him into bed. And then there's uh, you know the bathing and all the stuff that goes with it. A lot of people don't realize that when Ernie Johnson gets off the air, he goes home and he he's a caretaker. You know, I'll never forget that kind of iconic image of watching you and Mookie watching that comedy routine and just thinking this is just one of the most beautiful pictures of I want to say self-sacrifice Ernie but at the same time you seem to love it I mean there seems to be an exchange of love there that you wouldn't not that it's not hard but that you wouldn't trade anything for not for a second it's a level of life that I don't think most people have the privilege of experiencing because they haven't been given the beauty of that hardship. You you keep using the word unscripted, and that's, of course, the title of your book. All of us want to script our lives because it gives us control. Right. And you have accomplished so much giving up control, and yet giving up control hasn't lessened your power or impact in the world. Was there ever just a complete frustration of like, my life is going to be wasted unless we go on script. And and when did you realize, no, the world can be a more beautiful place and I can do more in it if I just ride this giant wave and get on my surfboard and let the story tell itself? I mean, walk me through that tension of a guy who's got to be controlled on the air to a guy who decided he wasn't going to be off the air. It goes back to that phone call with Cheryl in that orphanage. And really, I, I credit Michael with recalibrating my life. Hmm. It puts you in a, in a servanthood mentality because hmm. at the current time, you know, Michael's 28 now. Yeah. So he's defied the muscular dystrophy odds. You know, we've had episodes in which we thought we had lost him. Hmm. I mean, in 2011, when he got I remember that. pneumonia, yeah. which is one of those things... Yeah, it's, this is one of those things that you try to guard against at all costs because of the lack of strength and the inability to clear his lungs. And he doesn't have the strength to cough. And suddenly he has this horrible episode where he codes. It's a code blue in the hospital and they have to paddle him back. And then they have to put a trach in there. So he's 
hooked up to a, a ventilator and he has been for the, you know, for the last six years now. And so this child, I call him a child, he's 28. He can do nothing on his own. Mm. We are responsible for everything. And that even goes down to the most common thing. It's like you have an itch and you scratch it. He can't do that. Mm. He looks at me sometimes and says, scratch ahead, dad. And you do it. Or like that image you remember from that day is he just loves it. If you rub his back because he's sitting in a chair all day. And yeah. I need that, Don. I need that. I need to put somebody else in front of me and reach out to him and not make it about me. It's not, what are you going to do for me today? It's what can I do for you? Mm-hmm. Michael created that whole mentality and I'm forever in his debt for that. Yeah. And then to watch the way his life has progressed and, and some of the episodes in his life, that person who handed him to Cheryl and said, don't take toy is no good. Couldn't have been further from the truth. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Ernie Johnson in just a moment. All right, it's one of our favorite segments of the StoryBrand podcast. Kula Callahan is back with marketing Mythbusters. Oh, that's good. Kula, you have another myth that most companies believe about their marketing, and you're going to bust it. I am going to bust it because this is a really painful one. Bust a move on it. The myth we're busting this week is that people buy solutions to external problems. But they don't, do And they? that is a myth. That's a myth. Now, by external problems, we mean like physical problems, like they buy lawn care or right. they buy rain sprinklers or they buy, I don't know what a rain sprinkler is, but they don't buy those. Right. They don't buy umbrellas. They buy so they don't buy something else. solutions to problems that can be solved by a physical, tangible product or service. They buy solutions to their internal problems. And what I mean by that is that Companies tend to sell solutions to these external problems, right? If you have a bad lawn, you buy a lawnmower. If you have right. a headache, you buy aspirin. What people are really looking for when they go, quote, shopping is a solution to the internal frustration that they're dealing with as a result of facing this external problem. Exactly. So if I'm going to buy lawn care from a lawn care company, I'm not trying to resolve my lawn care problem. That's, that's hard for companies to understand. Right. What I'm really trying to resolve is the embarrassment I feel because my lawn looks bad. And your neighbor's lawn looks better. That's right. And the envy I have because my neighbors are the competition that I'm feeling. Whatever you solve, the external problem you solve, is agitating a feeling in your customer. They are motivated to resolve that feeling. That's Before what, they're motivated to resolve the they, external need. They're not motivated to resolve an external problem at all. Because if I don't care, if I don't get jealous of my neighbor, if I don't get embarrassed about my lawn, I'm not going to buy your lawn care because I'm only motivated by how I feel about things. You're just going to let the weeds ever grow. That's right. I'm going to let the weeds over. Here's the point. If in your marketing collateral, you don't talk about resolving your customers' frustrations or feelings or embarrassment or whatever internal problem they're struggling with, they don't identify with your brand. That's right. So what do we do? So if brands stop at the external problem that they solve, their relationship with their customer is strictly transactional. But if you want to create raving fans of your business, and if you want to sell more products, you need to be very clear about how you offer a resolution to the internal frustration that they're feeling. So by creating resonance around that embarrassment of your lawn, hey, Don, we know that sometimes you're jealous of your neighbor's lawn, and we want to help you solve that. Yeah. In truth, that's the opposite. The neighbor's very jealous of mine. But <laughs> I'll call you anyway because you guys... Well, the key to this is just to write down all your revenue streams on the left side of a piece of paper. And on the right side of the piece of paper, write down how your customer might be feeling because they don't have that product. Exactly. Because they don't have that service. 
and then get that into your email blast, into your website, into your, you know, wherever it is that you have marketing collateral. Offer to resolve those feelings and see what happens. It's just like stories. Stories are about people trying to resolve their internal tension. So struggle, embarrassment. Yeah. Prove themselves. Exactly. Overcome some anxiety, whatever. And the external problem is just there to manifest an internal problem. And it's the same with our branding. Excellent. If you want more marketing tips like these, go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. That's 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. I've got three five-minute videos that will help you clarify your message and make immediate changes to your marketing collateral so that they get a bigger response. If you want customers to listen to you, go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. Kula, thanks for being on the show. So glad to be here. You guys have adopted four kids. You've got two of your own. Of course, they're all yours. Walk me through the other five. I mean, because you you actually adopted <laughs> just a few years ago, about four or five years ago, right? Yeah. You guys yeah. did it again. <laughs> yeah, two years after we adopted Michael back in 91. And our intention at that point, when you have to do all of the uh, paperwork for the adoption agency, they kind of say, you know, what kind of a child are you, look, are you looking to adopt? And we had said, you know, a little girl under a year old. Turns out we adopted this boy who's nearly three years old. And so, you know, Eric and Maggie were our first two. Mm-hmm. And Maggie was kind of like, hey, look, I thought you were going to go get a girl. <laughs> and now you got, we, you brought home a boy. And so for two years, we were hearing like, hey, the ratio here is, is you know, I'm not liking it. <laughs> two boys and one girl. And so Cheryl and I had decided that, you know, we could adopt again. And the, and the thing that's crazy, and it's one of these times where, where God winks at you, is that two years to the day that Michael was brought to Atlanta by Cheryl from Romania on July 6th of 91, two years to the day later, July 6th, 1993, we got a phone call from an agency that says, there's a little girl in Paraguay. Are you interested? Hmm. And Cheryl and I both look at the calendar and said, oh, obviously we are. And so then we went to Paraguay and, and adopted Carmen, and she was here yeah. with a little girl who was under a year old and perfectly fine in terms of her health. So then we had this family of four, you know, you know, because of Cheryl's work against uh, sex trafficking, she knew that a lot of girls who age out of the foster care system fall prey to the sex traffic Hmm. because they are so starved for attention that these pimps just jump at the opportunity and they befriend them and then they're under their control. And the facts and figures that Cheryl would throw at me about sex trafficking would sicken you. You know, you're talking about these girls who get pulled into this trade and then are are performing, you know, dozens of sex acts every night, Hmm. every day of the week and can't get out of it. So the thought was, let's adopt out of the foster care system a girl. This is a girl who will not fall into that trap. And we wound up adopting half-sisters from foster care in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, they were eight and nine at the time, and now they're 15 and, and just turned 17. And look, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. And, you know, I never want you know, people listening to say, then it's all, must be all perfect. Yeah. No, and, and I tell people, I said, these girls didn't have many possessions, but they had a ton of baggage. And we're still working on all that baggage. And it's a struggle. But we're working on it today. And we'll work on it tomorrow. And we'll work on it the day after that. And we're just trying to follow the prompt and the lead that we felt. And it may not look like the finished product, but it's what we were called to do. 
Well, not only that, I mean, it's, you know, everybody wants a rough story or a horrible story to become a beautiful story. And sometimes a horrible story just gets replaced with a really tough story. But it's not a horrible story anymore because you guys stepped in. And uh, it's a really beautiful thing. All right, I want to I want to talk about the juxtaposition that I noticed in your book. And it's this. You were diagnosed with cancer. You got treated in 2006. You uh, went through chemotherapy. And you never missed a single day of uh, your job. You were on the air on Inside the NBA every night, even though you were going through chemo. So there's a, a work ethic and a commitment there. That is unbelievable, all right? Juxtapose that, Ernie, with 2003 NBA Finals and the San Antonio Spurs uh, are in it. And the problem is if this thing goes to game seven, you would have to miss your son's graduation. So you say on page 112, and then I added the but if part of the equation. If the series did not end and there was a game seven, I wouldn't be in San Antonio, but at my son's high school graduation. Having already received the blessing of management for my decision, I was still curious to see how the members of this core unit, the men and women who were there every night doing their various production jobs, would take it. So you're having to tell everybody, I'm not going to be here if this thing goes to seven. Your producer says, will you be available to talk to TV writers if you skip game seven? They'll want to know why you're not there for a game that's that big. And your response was immediate. You can give them my number and I'll tell them that I never want my son to think he came in second to a basketball game. So here's this unbelievable commitment to be there no matter what's happening to you. And an also unbelievable commitment to your family to say, I just love the juxtaposition there. Ernie, of you saying, this job is dead serious. I'm taking it seriously. I'm going to be there. But my family is even more serious. How did you develop that? That's the thing. In both of those cases, it was the message I was trying to get across to my son that your graduation, this marking moment in your life, is much more important than Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals if it comes to this. That's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be watching you and the cat and the down. On the cancer side of that, it was this. You know, when I was going through chemo in the summertime, I did miss the PGA Championship and the British Open that summer while I was having chemo. I didn't miss any NBA time during that time. And even when my lymph nodes had gotten really swollen and you could see on the air that something was wrong with yeah, me. Yeah, I remember that. But I hadn't started chemo at that point. But my message at that point was, I'm going to work because I don't want anybody out there thinking that because you have cancer, you're going to hide it. Hmm. And that was the message I wanted there. So that was why it was important for me to stay on the job right there. And even as difficult as it was because it was, look, I knew I looked different on the air. And I, and I was self-conscious of that. And there were people getting online making jokes about me. Hmm. And there were people online who were saying, what are you doing? You don't mess with cancer. You should get that treated right now. Hmm. Like they were privy to the conversations I was having with my oncologist who said, we don't need to do it right now. If we want to do it this summer, well, let's go. And that's, and that's where we decided we would go. And so it was all about the message. I've got a mother who's a two-time cancer survivor. I've got a sister who survived breast cancer. And I was not going to say, okay, I better go into hiding. I'm not going to do that. And so for me, it was just about the message that I wanted sent in both of those cases. It was, this job is not as important as your graduation. And this job is important to me to keep going because 
people out there have cancer, and a lot of people have it, and it's not going to stop me. Ernie, when did you realize that your life could be a statement? I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are high impact who are listening to this podcast who don't fully realize, you know, they, they, they see themselves as kind of invisible. They see themselves as sort of, uh, of consumers of life, you know, rather than creators of it. Was it your father? Uh, was it your early experience in broadcasting that gave you this understanding that people are watching and that you can set the moral compass in their lives by your actions and your words? Well, I think part of it comes from my dad. A big part of it comes from my dad because what I realized from growing up and being allowed to tag along with him to the stadium and, and watch him work was that he was teaching me so much without preaching to me. I was just yeah. watching him. Yeah. I was just watching him deal with fans who would uh, hear him on the radio and think they knew him. And, you know, and they yell to him as he's making the walk from the field up to the booth to do the game. And he'd spend 15 minutes with a total stranger like they were lifelong friends. So I think what that's told me as I've become you know, a father of six is that kids have superpowers. They see and hear everything. Hmm. And so they're watching every move you make. They're watching how you treat other people. They're watching how you react when you're caught in a long line at the store or you're caught in traffic or the repairman is two hours late to the house or whatever that is. Or if you bring your work home with you and you take it out on the rest of the family. And so they're watching everything and you're modeling all of that. And so I think that's where that came from. And then I think, could I make a statement? That's a line that I tread where I'm saying, I don't want to feel like I'm self-important. Mm-hmm. And like, hey, you ought to look at my life and hey, everybody look at me. I, I've got it all figured out because I don't. And so when I watched what ESPN did with that E60 about her family, it was the reaction that I got and continue to get when people see it. Mm-hmm. It says the life I'm living is speaking to somebody on a lot of different levels. And that's what kind of sparked the book. I said, I want to go deeper yeah. than that piece went. And not to put myself on a pedestal and say, all of you out there who have questions about life, come to me because I have all the answers. No, it's, it's like, here's how we navigate it. We're not always good at it, but here's how we've tried to do it. And so that, I think, is where the statement comes. And I think it would be naive of me to think that I don't have a platform because I know that I have a platform yeah. that not everybody does. Hmm. I have to be judicious in, in how I use that. But I think when you're talking about real life stuff, when you're talking about, you know, this might have relevance to somebody who's thinking about adopting. This might have relevance to somebody who's in, whose first chemo appointment is next Tuesday. Mm. And that's where I think I just have to, I, I want to make that statement, but I want to do it responsibly and honestly and, and let the folks know that I'm not, you know, I don't have it all figured out, but I'm trying. Yeah. Ernie, Charles Barkley, when he was giving his acceptance speech to go into the Hall of Fame, he mentioned you in his speech, and he said something like, this is one of the greatest men I've ever met. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was a, you know, it meant something to Charles. And this is somebody who spends a lot of time with you, as does Kenny Smith. You've won the John Wooden Keys to Life Award. You're celebrated even at a young age for somebody who has integrity, a deep sense of faith, a commitment to other people. You know, a guy like me and a guy like probably a lot of our listeners would look at you and say, this guy's figured out something about life. 
He's figured out how to live a successful life and a meaningful life. And my final question to you is, what do we need to remember if we want to have extraordinary life? What is the thing that we need to remember every day? Other people. That's what you have to remember. Yeah. And I think when we get so tied up in what we are doing, and we're going at such breakneck speed, that you miss those moments where you can impact somebody's life. And... You know, I, I love the, I think it's the Ritz-Carlton. Wasn't the, the, the motto of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel when it began, ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. Wow. And I try to remember that all the time. I want to serve. I don't want to be the, hey, I'm a TV guy. What are you going to do for me? I want to be walking out the door after having served my book in the morning and have my antenna up so that I notice the people who, who need to have somebody to talk to or notice them. You mentioned Jeff Foxworthy earlier. Mm -hmm. Jeff says one of the greatest things of all time, he says anytime he's out working or doing a shoot somewhere, he says, I want to talk to the shadow people. Mm. He says, because there there are so many people out there in the shadows who nobody pays attention to. Mm. Nobody asks them how they're doing. Nobody asks them if they can help in some way. And I think that's our responsibility. And part of that also comes when I think about my cancer. Look, I think part of the responsibility that goes with that is that you help the next person through it. I can't tell you how many people who I've never met personally, but have just talked to on the phone because a friend of mine has said, hey, I got a buddy who's about to start chemo. I said, give me his number. Hmm. We'll talk. And I'll tell him the same thing that was told to me when I was going through tests. You may have cancer, but it doesn't have you. Hmm. And so I think that responsibility comes there. Look, I never would have scripted muscular dystrophy. I never would have scripted cancer, but when I look at, at what has happened as a result of that thing, of those things with, with Michael and those things personally with me through cancer, I wouldn't trade it in a second. Mm-hmm. It's developed me. It's opened my eyes to the world in a way I, I wouldn't have seen it before. And so give me the unscripted, man. Give it to me. And that's the thing. I'm going to embrace the unscripted. I'm not going to run away from it. And as a result, my life is as full as it has ever been. Well, Ernie, this has been a beautiful interview. You're, you've lived a beautiful life, and uh, you, you've got a long way to go here. But this book, Unscripted, The Unpredictable Moments That Make Life Extraordinary, uh, is not just a book that I enjoyed reading. It's actually got a special place in my writing shed. I've got three or four copies, but there's one copy in the writing shed that I put on top of a bookshelf. And on top of that bookshelf, there's a picture of Bob Goff. There's a baseball that somebody sent me with a personal inscription that means a lot to me. There's a few things that I can look over and just go, that's who I want to become. And so one copy of this book is going to sit on top of that bookshelf so I can look over and go, I just want to head where Ernie's at. Wherever Ernie's at, I just want to walk in that direction because it it seems right and it seems beautiful. I'm so grateful for you. If you uh, are looking for a way to inspire yourself to slow down, to see other people, to begin sacrificing, to forget that the world is about you, if you're looking for inspiration because you're going through a hard thing, this book, Unscripted, uh, you can pick it up wherever you buy books. And the author of this book is the real deal. Ernie Johnson, thank you so much for uh, honoring our listeners and spending time with us today. John, thank you so much. I, I treasure our friendship, and I these moments we've spent just now, man, just it just means the world. Thank you so much. 
We all have those moments in life that are unscripted, not what we had planned. And if you want to see how some of those unscripted moments can really be some of the best moments and help you move forward in life and in your work, go to buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet and download notes from this podcast. That's buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. Well, JJ, kind of sets the moral uh, compass, doesn't it? Seriously. <laughs> it's nice because, you know, yeah. you, you come home and Betsy's had a long day, I've had a long day, whatever. You don't feel like connecting. And then you hear a podcast like that or you hear an interview like that or you meet somebody like Ernie and you realize, oh, no, this is life. Yeah. Not that work isn't life. Work is great and it's important. It can be fun. But yeah. I don't need to check out for this. Yeah. This is where the beauty happens. I love just that idea of for him saying, my son will never be second. Yeah, I love that. Picking those things in life and saying, this is what matters. The NBA finals are amazing, Yeah, but there are things that matter more. Yeah. There are people listening who they've been through hardships that we can't even understand. Yeah. And Ernie's connecting with them on a whole different level. And just more power to you. Yeah. You know, all sorts of grace to you in, in your journey. And what a hero. And I'll call Ernie sometimes and say, in fact, it was recently met somebody whose son, you know, dove off of a motorboat and it, it was shallow water and he didn't realize it was shallow water. He broke his neck and now he's paraplegic. And I said, Ernie, I, you know, this guy's a big fan. You think you can give him a call? I mean, the next day he's on the phone with this guy. Yeah. You know, it's just stuff like that. There you go. Oh my <laughs> so gosh. inspiring. Yeah. It is. Very inspiring. It makes us yeah. all want to be a better person. Speaking of incredible stories, yeah. next week's interview is Anne Byler. Do you know who Ann Byler is? I do. Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> what do you take me for? She has Auntie Anne's Pretzel Company. I know. She started it. And a lot of people don't know the story uh, that she started it. She grew up Amish. Yeah. And she made some great pretzels. She actually made a bunch of stuff, but then everybody in her little shop liked the pretzels, and she realized she <laughs> yeah. could scale up pretzels, yeah. which is brilliant. Yeah. She's got like 2,500 stores now. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But she has this amazing story. You know, she was very vulnerable in our interview. Yes. She talked about the hardships in her marriage, the depression. She talked about depression yeah. and all this kind of stuff and got through a lot of that, got some help, got some therapy, and she talks about that. And scaled up her business into this multi-million-dollar empire that I love. <laughs> I know the one that I think of is uh, when you're walking through uh, O'Hare Airport, O'Hare, yeah. and they've got that Annie Ann's pretzel. You know, do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? It's like I that, do, it's actually. like a cart. It's yeah. not like the whole store. It's like the cart. Mm-hmm. And when you go to Nashville, you got to go to this other terminal. Yep. So I fly in from wherever, and then I'm running. It's like three miles, and I'm like, I'm not gonna make a flight. I'm not gonna make a flight. You know, they probably already left. I can get there maybe. And then you see Annie. It's like, well, maybe I, I can just go, I get stop a, and get yeah. a pretzel real quick. A I'm sure they'll wait for me. Yeah. <laughs> Different store, I think. Cup of cinnamon cinnamon. bites. No, the cinnamon bite cups at Annie Ant. Oh, is that what they're called? Yeah, or cinnamon sticks. I don't. I just I usually love them, just get the salad. But I get it at the. <laughs> you get the salad. <laughs> no, I know where the one is in the Nashville airport, and I know where the one is in Newark airport because those are the two I'm in the Does most of. <laughs> and I do. I know exactly where they are. Well, there's a reason for that because she has lured you in with her incredible business ability. Anyway, here's a quick sample with my interview with Ann Byler. I grew up in the task-oriented era. It was all about seeing the work and getting it done. And so as an entrepreneur, I never really thought about, oh, I want to have my own business so I can have lots of money one day and have a nice big car and a big house. We believe that God created Auntie Anne's as a vehicle to give philanthropically. So we knew that was our purpose. That was your why we're in this. Absolutely. And so it was never a part of our thinking. We never thought about, oh, we're going to make lots of money and, you know, have a good life. It was all about, you got to get up every morning and do the work because Don, we, we knew that we had a task 
that was so daunting because we come from a farm and we didn't know anything about business. So we really took the task-oriented approach and realized that this is a task that we must do well. All right. So next week. Yes. I mean, we are hitting home run after home run with our guests here. They're amazing. They really are quite incredible. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that you guys are listening. And because you're listening and the podcast is getting so many more subscriptions, we're able to get bigger and bigger yeah. guests. So please keep listening and tell your friends about the podcast. Also tell your friends, before we go, about the Building a Story Brand book. The yes. Building a Story Brand book doesn't come out until October 10th. However, you can get a copy of the book right now. That's five months before it actually comes out. Thomas Nelson, my publisher, has let 1,000 copies of the advanced reader's copy go. That normally goes to USA Today or Today Show or all the press. I convinced them, please print 1,000 more. They lovingly said, okay, yes. we'll do it. <laughs> Here's how you get one of those copies five months before it comes out. You just order the book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever you order books. Order the book and forward your receipt to book at storybrand.com. When you do that, we will get your mailing address, and we will send you a physical copy of the book right now. So you'll actually get a physical copy of the book and a hardback copy of the book on October 10th for the price of just the hardback yes. book. Not only that, you'll be reading it well before anybody else. <laughs> uh, you can get that book again. Just pre-order it anywhere you buy books. Forward your receipt to book at storybrand.com, and we'll get that in the mail to you. There's only 1,000, so pre-order now. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. And thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. Music.